0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Amanda Bruegel, an actor whose credits include recurring roles on Kim's Convenience, The Handmaid's Tale, Pretty Hard Cases, Workin' Moms, Dare Me, Snowpiercer, and Orphan Black. She also makes movies when she has the time, appearing in Sugar Daddy, Suicide Squad, and Room, among others. With Her latest feature, the twisty domestic drama Ashgrove, Amanda shares writing and producing credits with co-star Jonas Chernick and director Jeremy Lalonde. She also plays The lead, a brilliant scientist whose work on solving a devastating global crisis is somehow tied to the stability of her own marriage. It's a departure for all concerned, and it's pretty good. You can find it in theaters and on digital across Canada this Friday, December 2nd. Amanda picked The Shawshank Redemption, Frank Darabont's 1994 adaptation of Stephen King's novella Rita Hayworth in Shawshank Redemption, starring Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins as two convicts staring down life sentences in a state penitentiary known for its brutality. Initially regarded as a box office disappointment, Darabont's film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And while it didn't win any of them, it became a home video champion and a cable TV perennial. It's now considered one of the most beloved films of that decade, a movie people hold close to their hearts and even wear on their skin really this is someone else's movie
1: it's i mean i've assumed that because you've done so many of these that you would have had at least 50 people suggest it because in my mind it's the greatest movie ever made and i feel like it's its such a basic bitch answer um <laughs> because well it's just on everyone's list and it's always on top 100 lists and it's just such a beloved movie and Um, I first saw it when it first came out on uh, VHS and I was at a sleepover and it was we ran out of movies and so a parent's friend who was a teacher, teacher told us to watch it and I think I was 15 and there's no way like six 15 year old girls at a sleepover like let's dig into this three hour just absolute story about redemption and horror and friendship and loss and and but we loved it and i was curled up in my sleeping bag and i cried so hard at the end and it was just as i was getting into acting and i fell in love with the, the just the sounds um of morgan freeman's voice and uh the honesty in the performances i love stephen king already um and just the overarching theme of hope it's just it's to me it's the thing that's the most important message from it and so i have i hope tattooed on my back
0: oh that's lovely you had mentioned there was a tattoo and i was just hoping it wasn't get busy living or get busy dying because that just seems grim
1: no that's a bit that's a bit far like there's so many there's so many so many lines from the movie. That's all it takes is pressure and time when he's talking about the study of uh, geology. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many very specific lines that I use and friends that know how much I love the movie will say it to one another and have done so for over 20 years.
0: That's wonderful to, mm-hmm. to have built up that level of connection to a movie. I mean, I have it with some stuff. Um, you know, Shawshank occupies yeah. such a strange space. I mean, not only for the... 15 year old girl aspect of it but it's weird you know when it when it was named the number one film on the imdb or something years and years ago um it was it was seen as such a shock Mm -hmm. to the critical community because it wasn't the most embraced film and it was a bomb like it didn't do well theatrically which everybody forgets it was mm-hmm. it was kind of written off as the naive open-hearted like Stephen King wrote this everything about it was a weird yeah. negative at the time I mean I remember watching it and liking it because I I was very familiar with the short story mm-hmm. having read that like 10 years earlier I guess mm-hmm. and I really liked what Darabont did with it the the casting of Morgan Freeman which the casting of him is
1: red yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and throwing it away, like just mm-hmm. leaving it on, leaving it on Freeman's that one line is like, maybe because I'm mm-hmm. Irish and just throwing it out. Yeah. Whereas in the book he was, or in the, in the novella, yeah. he was, I think, I can't remember who King said he would have picked, but it was a really strange choice, even in 1984. Like it was a sort of a cartoon Irish character and Freeman just doesn't do anything differently. Like he plays the role, um, with that thing he does where he, he has, he just inhabits, the character as himself as, and as then himself suddenly becomes that. a different person
1: well that's why darabont cast him he loved his voice he loved his strength he loved the cadence of his voice and with with red narrating um a majority of the film that that's the huge thing that they leaned on knowing that he was going to do that
0: yeah oh and it makes all the difference it's yeah. um it's it's not the first time he played a kind of a wise mentor but it's the first time he seems to own it as the morgan freeman role like he's come into it but like robin hood was three four years earlier and he robin
1: was was driving miss daisy before,
0: 89
1: yeah yeah okay uh
0: but he's still looks ultimately kind of subservient in that part he's pl- i mean he's playing a version of a subservient character and the authority that he brings to red and the weariness mm-hmm. right like he's not getting out and he doesn't have any illusions he's no longer hopeful and so andy arrives and changes everything
1: his whole um skipping to the end his whole um monologue if you remember that scene about becoming institutionalized Mm -hmm. and then throughout as you see the little sort of vignettes of him going up for the parole meetings with all of the the people throughout all of the different years i suppose in my mind it's every nine years they've been there for 20 years um and uh that last, the that the last meeting he has with the parole board when he just completely gives up and says, "So stamp your damn form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time," um, it's it's that it's the fatigue in his voice that he uses. And and Morgan Freeman doesn't really do that. He doesn't really play dark or he's not even really dark. He doesn't play tired. Yeah, I in a lot of roles, and he was very settled into this role from the beginning it was quite a lovely turn for him because I was familiar with him before knowing I wanted to be an actor and at the time not having access to a ton of black male or female actors and so seeing him in this it was um it was like a seeing like an uncle like a familiar face
0: yeah and he is I mean despite the fact that red is I mean as he says not a good person early on like he, mm-hmm. he lays that out on the line pretty quickly as well the
1: only guilty man in Shawshank
0: yeah which mm-hmm. again I think is why he carries himself with that authority because he's not pretending he's he's yes. just he's occupying a moral space that no one else is occupying mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that gives him freedom and honesty and the honesty in the end is the, the that's the thing he's hiding from the parole board right like until the last time he is still that's the time he pretends to be someone else yes and it doesn't work for him and He's not evil, but he's done bad things. Mm-hmm. And when he, his arc of slowly realizing that Andy Dufresne is an innocent yes. is never articulated. It's just played on his face the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that gives him so much presence and so much watchfulness and alertness. Like he's, Morgan Freeman is an incredible scene partner, but to watch, like revisiting the film and realizing how much he's doing without even, interacting with
1: the audience or that yes yeah having the um, I say this a lot because in Handmaids it, it, I have to do the same thing where he doesn't have to rely have any text to rely on to tell that story for himself usually mm-hmm. a lot of actors have that that sort of space for exposition in order to tell the audience what they're feeling instead of having to emotionally show it, instead of having to emote and some people when you do have to emote there's a lot of indicating going on and and there's, actors have different tricks and things that they can do to try to show an audience what they're feeling, and he never does. He rides that line, which is quite beautiful in this. And, um, uh, Tim Robbins does it as well, though, um, which I think that's why there are lovely scene partners together, because they both aren't indicating whatsoever. They're existing um, in the scene together so well without ever Tim Robbins never plays the woe is me I'm the most innocent in the world because he does bring up the fact that he I mean he didn't kill his wife but he wasn't a great husband he wasn't an attentive partner um and just because his character Andy is already still so sort of um uh mild and reserved, and there's a wall there. They both have these beautiful, it's just such beautiful nuanced performances that I don't think I'd paid attention to before. And maybe because it was three hours long and I was trapped in a sleeping bag, I did. But that was <laughs> the first time I really recognized um, just the the beautiful things that actors can do and how what they can make
0: people feel. It was the first time. I... I can only imagine what that's like getting hit by I mean, had you were you familiar with Tim Robbins? Because he really wasn't
1: No, not at all. I had no idea who who Tim Robbins was. I, I but no, not at all. Any of them. And then afterwards I was fans of everyone I got to work with Gil Bellows and I couldn't speak to him for the first two. <laughs> it was about four <laughs> years ago. We're friends now, but I couldn't I could not speak to him. Um but no, not familiar with Tim Tim Robbins at all. And like I said, it's not the 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 um the subject matter of the movie is not something that that should be appealing for fifteen year olds, but it was always very melodramatic and still am. And so the music, the score is stunning, and so that lulls you in immediately. And um, like I said, I was aware that it was that it was uh, Stephen King's, apart from his novella, because we had been doing a project before that in school on Stand By Me, okay. and I realized that was Stephen King as well.
0: Yeah, which was the first time in pop culture, I think, that people really understood that he wasn't just the horror guy. Yes. That was the Rob Reiner film, really did it more than anything else.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, But every story in different seasons, well, there's only four, but they're just realist dramas. They're not even, they're not fantastical in any way. No. And the the fourth one is The Breathing Method, which no one has ever filmed because it's just too weird, which, and I get that. I don't think there is a way to do that. Me too, me too. (laughs) There's so I guess app pupil has horror elements I always forget that's in the book but yes, uh, and, the, and the film version of that takes it even further but the um the tenderness in Shawshank as a short story too or as a novella I keep saying short story the thing is like 200 pages long I know, but I know. um the attention to detail the tenderness and the regard for hope and life and charity and all those all those things that horror authors aren't supposed to engage with. Mm-hmm. Um, it highlights King's strengths and the things that have developed since, I think, as a as a writer, because I've been fascinated to watch him sort of turn into the like a 20th century he's playing in Edgar Allan Poe's territory where yeah. Yeah. There's, a, there's a great deal of gothic, but it's all yeah. situated in the here and now and in human yeah. relationships. And, and Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption is such a strange story, even for that, because yeah. it's all these ideas jumping around in his head that he hasn't figured out how to articulate. And then it flows into this all all at once. And then you watch Darabont leave out the stuff that didn't work, which didn't is work, remarkable. Yeah. Yes.
1: yeah. Yeah, I was re- in re- doing um, in preparing for this, and well, not preparing for it because I could talk about Shawshank all day. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I just wanted to look up uh, just facts about the script. I didn't realize that he sold Darabont the rights for five grand.
0: Yeah, he had five made grand. a short film previously, yes. uh, an adaptation of The Woman in the Room from Night yes. Shift, and I think that was one of those dollar sales that King yeah. was doing at the time, where he yeah. would just if a short filmmaker reached out to him and had a good pitch, he'd say, "Here you go." Yeah which yeah. again, Stephen King just keeps striking me as a fundamentally decent human being who just happens to like, it's, it's the David Lynch thing. It's the Cronenberg thing. Totally. He gets it all out. Yes. So.
1: So the demons aren't, that the aren't really, there's nothing to hide. You can just all be all a out.
0: nice person because all the yes. monsters are between the covers of his books. And so his relationship with Darabont goes back to like, I, I want to say the early eighties. Yeah. I mean, I, I must've read about the woman in the room in Fangoria. Way back when, when I was a kid, and Darabont launches his career with that, and he Thanks wrote, that, yeah. um, he wrote the remake of The Blob, which I dearly love. Mm, which, yeah, so the third pillar of the great eighties remakes: the, the Thing, yeah. The Fly, and The Blob. The blob. Um, and then he just goes off and does not that. <laughs> he just decides no. not to make a horror movie for his Hard big life. splashy debut.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Didn't he take a massive pay cut to in order to be able to direct it?
0: Yes. Yes, I think so. Like his, He was already fairly well established as a screenwriter. Yes. And yeah, and this is the thing that I still don't fully understand. I always forget about this, like I've blocked it out of my mind, but the original casting, you know about this? He wanted Tom Cruise to play Tom Andy Cruise, and yes, Harrison Ford but as Ralph.
1: I know, Well know. Well, Kevin Costner was kicking around for a while, um, which, no, I mean, I, uh, Kevin Costner was great. Robin Hood is another, like old school love of mine I wouldn't put it on my list as one of my faves I just I could quote the heck out of it um just the right
0: age when you saw it
1: just the right age also I mean it was just the music and the like the 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 soundtrack was went went wild in the early 90s and Mm -hmm. um yeah it was just I loved it I worked at the movie theaters I grew up in movie theaters and so I worked at the theaters at the time when it came out and so
0: yeah Oh, that's so cool my grandfather owned a movie theater when i was a kid so
1: well my father was one of the very first vice presidents of famous players like the theater chain and <laughs> he built up megaplexes in all of the provinces like as so we as we moved west building like overseeing the the foundation of the megaplexes that were being built in the 80s we would move to each province and so i i grew up in projection booths
0: that's amazing the smell of call is still my prostian madeline yeah. that, that- <laughs> horrible oily salty smell that yes. i love and no one else does
1: yeah and no one else really knows really that i know
0: yeah and you're the only other person i know who uses the word megaplex really yeah i think oh, it's yeah. a it's like an inside industry term that i was think used. it is
1: i think and it's also 80s and it was v- like the and the idea of some of them b- being built like the one in calgary was unheard of like at the at the time having a theater chain a chain come in yes but having a theater with multi different um just just different screens in every every room but also having um sort of a uh at the time it seemed like an um an over-the-top snack bar and a a meeting area and a kid lounge and so yeah it seemed like little mini cities that were unheard of at the time it was very exciting
0: for the city and it persists we still have a few of them we do They're, they're scary now
1: well, they see, it's strange. It feels like you're going back in time or I'm stepping into stranger things. Every time I see one or I see one in a film, I just, yeah, it's
0: odd. Yeah. I was going to say it feels like walking into an arcade. Yes, totally. Even now. And and going to see a movie like The Shawshank Redemption uh, mm-hmm. would feel weird because it's completely antithetical to a blockbuster, right? Like Absolutely. it is. Right it now. has become this thing. But at the time, it was this tiny little art movie that nobody saw. Nobody saw. and then it, Came the most rented film uh, which is still something that's absolutely fascinating to me mm-hmm. but that's what video did right like especially now when you look back at the kind of movies that were huge successes on video like forrest gump and pulp fiction those were always going to be a big deal they were both yes. massive cultural things yes. and shawshank was waiting to be discovered and then just started rolling and never really stopped
1: never really stopped but you know that being said i don't know if had i discovered it in my even uh early 20s and someone said hey you should watch this it's great or even even in when i was you know late 20s early 30s when it really started to become um this nostalgic piece of mm. uh, just like, just part of the film's like guys that we all just love and hold on to. I think I probably would have watched it once. thought it was great. I don't know necessarily if I would have had lines tattooed on my body. I don't know if I would have the same relationship with it. I don't know if I would be able to quote it from beginning to end. It was just something about being 15 years old, seeing it really before anyone was talking about it it was because my friend's dad was a teacher he had a copy from the library and it was just and and then no one we didn't really talk about it again no one had ever brought it up i would talk about it a lot and no one really knew it so because it was so much part of my childhood like my teenage years i think that's the impact that it had on me like i said being an adult i would have loved it but i don't think it would have filled my dna like it has now
0: yeah and i wonder if maybe it's because it's so Ernest. so it's it's almost yeah. old. I mean, it is old fashioned in its yeah. storytelling structure, but it's honesty and its emotional um, breadth. Mm-hmm. The the fact that he pulls off the scene of everyone standing still listening to opera, which just shouldn't work. No, in a
1: prison, like no, <laughs> no, no. There are some such, such ridiculous things. Even the at the on the top when they're mopping with the suds, and he he exchanges the tax information or, or says he's going to look over his tax information for, uh, for his two bottles apiece for his, I think he calls them, what do you call them? Colleagues? Companions? Um, the, when they're, when they're tarring the roof, it's just so cheesy and so over the top, but you're right. There is a certain amount of, um, there's, there's an earnest, beautiful innocence in it with grown convicts that shouldn't work but that's why i love it so much i also think i love it because you see a different side of these people who have sort of been relegated to the um to the to the sides um outcasts we don't really consider people that are unseen that are in prisons or have done foul things as we don't think of them as having hearts or families or brotherhoods that are of substance They usually have those sort of brotherhoods in order to survive or maybe for uh, physical needs, but it was just such a beautiful story of um, just brotherhood and family that um, just took place in an unlikely setting.
0: Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my twice-weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I reviewed Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans and dug into new 4K releases of Malcolm X, Saturday Night Fever, Wayne's World, and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the SimCast Twitter account. Did you miss me writing about movies? I did. Come check it out. I think again, Freeman's narration is the thing that, you know, it's 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 constantly showing us things that are outlandish or out, outsized, or mm-hmm. you know, like Bob Gunton being so preposterously evil as the warden, um, and then Clancy Brown as the captain of the guard, who's oh, no, he's
1: so ridiculous. Yeah, oh.
0: and he is. They're so over the top, but because Red's narration is so grounded yes. and so almost sort of self-aware. Yes. I mean, he hangs the lantern on the on the opera sequence by laying it right out and saying, "Oh, you know, look at these old these these monsters who are standing there bewitched, or however yeah. he puts it," yeah. um, and it makes it tender in a way that all the all the it's not cartoonish obstruction, but all the inst like the way that these men represent the institution, yeah. just embodying the cruelty of it, um, and then double down on that with Andy mm-hmm. while Red just sort of watches that lets us see it as a story a fable um maybe an allegory that's happening i I know that there's uh there's a lot of theory about andy being a christ figure which i don't think is necessarily
1: i uh i I agree with you i i don't i don't love that
0: yeah i I think the christian stuff gets way more obvious in the green mile
1: where yes
0: is clearly working something through
1: clearly and i don't for me the green mile that goes that goes a little too far to me the green mile and maybe because i did see it later on in life and i didn't see it in a sleeping bag at 15 that was a little too it was a little too fairy tale elements it was a little too there was a little too much innocence it was a little too soft and i don't mean soft in a masculine or feminine way i just mean in storyline in writing in performances it was all just a bit week to be set in prison. And so, yeah, that was, and I was really looking forward to it. I was really excited about it. And so that was, that was a bit of a disappointment because I think I had Shawshank in the back of my head and I knew I wasn't going to see Shawshank 2, but I was hoping to see something along those lines where the beautiful writing and equally gorgeous performances with the you know, it's the tenderness of some of the relationships, and there was, but it, I, I feel like it went a step too far.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I can see Darabont convincing himself that because he'd made Shawshank, yes. he, because he'd made Shawshank, he's the guy to do another Stephen King prison thing. But the the story that it's telling is just—I don't know—that you could make a successful feature out of it. Someone will probably now that I've said that, someone will probably do a, an eight-part Hulu series, and we'll all have to I watch had, it. I can
1: see that as a series, maybe, and but then you could go into other characters. It's just um,
0: who knows. It, yeah it goes places that i don't think it was really ready to go Uh, on the page even like the the, i remember reading the chapbooks as they were released month to month and thinking where is this even going and then when it gets there it's like oh oh okay you thought that would go. yes yeah Yeah. Yeah, just not ideal but shawshank i think because it is a smaller story and the scale is so much more contained Mm -hmm. um we're dealing with the passage of a couple of decades but it's rooted so so clearly in the story between these two people that the rest of the world might not even exist.
1: Yes. I think it's the first time too, that I've seen a platonic love story between two men and I hadn't seen them. And there's plenty of movies that have done that. Hmm. Um, plenty of very popular movies, but I just hadn't seen them at that age. Sure. And to, to watch that unfold and it have nothing to, to do with the, um, uh, sex and nothing to do with, with if they wanted they were getting anything but friendship and love from one another and middle-aged men uh, watching that happen it was just um for me it was beautiful to see and beautiful to see two men be able to express themselves so openly on camera together without it being yeah like i said without it being anything except friendship
0: and again it comes down to not only the casting but the Confidence. Like mm-hmm. the, the Darabont knows that they'll sell it without, overdoing it or underdoing it the tone of the film is so it's such an outlier because this is right at the moment of like the new independent american cinema tarantino's coming out and invigorating everything and this is technically a crime drama in that it's set in a prison Mm -hmm. and there's criminal activity and there's you know there's there are genuine threats there's the whole sequence with you know whatever you put in my mouth i'm gonna bite it off which which isn't i was really struck i there's no gay panic joke to it at all it's just Mm -hmm. like it's calculated it's a power move it's it's one of the few well prison rape is the wrong term right for for what's going on here because it's all about like establishing dominance and all that stuff and it's one of the few moments that i i can remember in a in a film with a prison and an american film specifically set in a prison where it's really completely rational right there's nothing there's no there's no luridness to it I think salacious now yes yeah nobody is putting gay panic on top of it there's no homophobic aspects to it No. Yeah. it's it's a surprisingly clear-eyed moment especially mm-hmm. for the period because you know what tango and cash is five years ago and that was just reprehensible with its with its, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> i'm trying to like is it gender politics i don't even know what to call it but whatever it was it was bad
1: it was it was horrible we were i was just talking about that to my partner the other day it was God, it was awful. Um, yeah, you're you're right. I haven't didn't think about that aspect. I only thought about really the 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 sort of the love story between the two of them. But but he, Darvan does handle the aspect of that they're called the sisters in the movie mm-hmm. of the the those men that are that that target Andy. Um, there isn't any real um, using as those scenes to either. Uh, titillate or push too far or make a commentary on prisons and what they're like for men it's it's more about establishing power and also more about um establishing how close andy was to not making it through that those early years which i think is a a plot device but it's done without um yeah it's done without going too far which keeps the innocence but it also establishes a certain amount of threat and danger for the audience to know that we're about to lose our central character
0: I mean, it's weird to use the word tasteful, but it is like it's handled. Yeah. To, like, the whole film is sort of respectable yes. in a way that people weren't prepared for. Yeah, um, and I do remember a couple of people saying that it was too squeaky clean, that it was too, yeah, it was too pleasant a vision of prison. Mm-hmm. But you're still seeing it through the memory of like it's 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 a story being told to you, and I, I think by having read narrated by using that directly from the, the, the page, it makes it okay because. I don't know that there's a version, like a, a Tarantinoized version of this story that you could tell that could work at the yeah. pace that they've used and at the tone that they've chosen. It really needs to be. Um, we're being treated. The film is willing to treat us as adults. Yes, and and offer that perspective on the story rather than kind of push your face into all the filth. That- And I don't know that you can do that and get the ending that King is going for. Like the, the the redemption and the heart. You can't, you can't.
1: I mean, it really is. It's a two hour and something 10 minute buildup to the moment when he's standing outside in the rain and he has finally been freed. And I don't think that the audience, I don't, I especially don't think that it would become this much of a, a, like a, beloved piece uh, i don't think that we could watch the horrific things that these characters that, that the movie has alluded that they've gone through or that we've sort of seen in these you know milder versions of some scenes of uh, aggression or sexual assault had the audience had to sit there slowly for 2 hours and some time it doesn't pay off you can't get the same thing you're not invested in the characters the same way I don't think you're not invested in the story in the same way. And you might have, you know, uh, feelings for Andy and Red, but not even other the supporting characters that we go into. And and so it's not really about I think that's what people upsets me about people when they critique films. Because uh Sometimes you can have it a fairy tale esque version of a prison. It doesn't mean that that's exactly what they're trying to show. This is not a true story. This is not, this is a version of a story. It's already heightened to a very strange place with the music and the friendships. Mm. And so to criticize it for not being true to life is just a bit silly to me. It's not a documentary. It's a version of a
0: story. Well, and it's also a story about nothing happening, right? The whole Mm -hmm. point of the passage of time is that they're, their incarceration continues there are things that that happen within that but it's about the lack of event Mm -hmm. so a version of this that has action sequences or a chase would just be something would cheapen it it would be and it would weirdly unbalance it too because Mm -hmm. you just need to you need to sink into the fact that you're watching stasis and if if you do that then you have to be resting on actors who can carry it you have to be able to Tell the audience that it's okay that nothing is going to happen for an hour That you're just going to watch these people exist yeah Yeah. and again like this is a first feature it's amazing (laughs) he knew how to do it
1: yeah yeah and the writing is supports that as well the writing is beautiful the last three lines that i hope to make it across the border i hope to see my friend and shake his hand i hope the pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams i mean just to have a 60-year-old man say that and, and to, for it to um, draw tears and emotion out of me. It's not just the lines. It's obviously that they're about to reunite. But it's just the, the writing is just as slow and steady and beautiful and earnest as the performances are. And I think that that's also what gives it that um, squeaky clean feeling. But it's something that I love
0: yeah the one thing the one note that I've never really wanted from it is seeing them at the end it's I, just, I didn't
1: want it either yeah you know, I didn't I just wanted that st- that shot of him on the bus looking out the window he goes and get, he gets the compass or even if it just it just pans up and it sees the water there's the overhead shot of the water you don't even have to see Andy on the boat just maybe indicating that he made it to the Pacific to see that it was blue but yeah me too
0: Sorry, oh, by sorry.
1: that time I'm usually bawling hysterically. <laughs> but yeah, I hope I, I don't like it either.
0: They don't make the movie if he doesn't get there. Like that's if no. they don't find each other again. We have to believe that's where it's at. And yeah. I think now you could get away with it. There's there's an entire film movement about denying oh, yeah. us that last shot and just bringing up the title instead. Yeah. The uh, the the Christopher Nolan package, I think we call yes. it. But the um, there is a way to do it. And on the other hand. If you do that maybe it doesn't linger with people you 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 miss the mass audience you you don't get people discovering it for the first time and having it assure them that everything's going to be okay and then inviting them to watch it again it's um it's that little point in time where like nothing was nothing was guaranteed there were no sure things this was a stephen king project that was considered risky um because it wasn't a horror thing and even after stand by me and he just shoots a shot like he uh, Darabont just made the movie he wanted to make which even now feels like um it escaped Uh-oh. rather than got released well unlikely yeah
1: yes yeah I think so I I mean now there's there people are filmmakers are up against so much pressure and I mean we're talking about we were just talking about the megaplexes this is around the time when megaplexes were still thriving yeah so Filmmakers like Darabont, especially with you know, Stephen King and the success of Stand by Me, that you couldn't. You filmmakers could get those chances, and especially with something that that was this sort of um, earnest and not violent and dare I say sweet. Um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's not a Cronenberg film. I've been in two. I've been in David and and um, Brandon's films. It's not a Cronenberg film. And so uh, I can see how, um, even though you're right, I said impossible, but it's not impossible. Nowadays to pull something like this off, no. When movie theaters are shuttering and it's streaming and it's you can't get anything made and it's only Marvel, I, I'm not sure it could be made even as a series.
0: And that kind of brings us to Ashgrove because that's where smaller films have ended up, like where where independent movies have ended up, have been hyper concentrated and really, really intimate, Mm -hmm. kind of in the same way with like Ashgrove mostly takes place in a single location with uh, the same people as we follow them. I mean, it's more like two days instead of 20 years, but I mean, I I remember when Jeremy told me what he had done because he didn't even mention it. Before it happened, like we snuck off to the farm and shot a movie without a script yeah uh, and that's the sort of radical experiment you can use as a as a as a hook now because it, now. You, it's no longer enough to just make that movie. you have to make it without a net.
1: yes, to get yes. people to pay attention completely and find something new ish as your hook and find something that will afterwards hopefully help with, especially because it's an indie, hopefully help with word of mouth, just something that's unique and interesting. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's just not enough to go into the woods with your friends anymore and, and shoot something. I think when I saw, um, Blair Witch for the first time, I thought, Oh my God, that's amazing. Uh, you can't do that anymore. You have to come up with 4,000 other ways to
0: make people watch. But in this case, um, I want to know everything. <laughs> I like it's just, it's such a, well, your function, you were, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, you're the only person who knew where it was going? I'm the only person who did not. Oh, you didn't? Okay, so that's- I'm the that's... lead of
1: the film and I'm the only person who did not. Jeremy and Jonas, we, for, you know, a year, because we had the luxury of doing so, met, met up in Zoom rooms for, uh, the first six months of the pandemic and, uh, crafted the story together, crafted the characters, uh, and a great deal of, uh, backstories and background information was helped us really. It's the most amount of prep that I've ever had on someone specifically with my central scene partner and my director it was a beautiful, wonderful luxury that I don't think I'll ever get. I hope I do. Um, We had the shape of a story, we had the shape of uh, loosely based ideas, loosely based scripts and things that we were going to say to one another, but ideally we were going to go in and sort of just shoot and see what happens. Um, I felt I had an idea of what was going to happen, but Jeremy and Jonas decided uh, um, at the very beginning that they were going to lead me to believe I knew how the film was going to end or what we were going to do, but they completely had lied to me. (laughs)
0: Okay. I misunderstood that bit.
1: Yes. Yes. So in the middle half, we, and we shot in, um, we, we shot in order. Um, and so I, I, we weren't jumping around and bouncing around. So I would get an indication that something was off uh, until we reached the point where I thought the script was going left, but the script took a hard, right. And when that took a hard, right, I almost left set. And they were preparing for me to leave because it was a scene with Christine Horn, um, I knew she was in the film. I helped cast her in the film, write ideas down for her um, of where I wanted her character to go. But uh, I had no idea she was going to be Australian and she was going to show up with uh, two um, uh, sort of blacked out navigators and trap me into the set and then come running at me. I did not know that was going to happen. And so from then the film just it went off the rails for me, but it was amazing.
0: That's incredible. I almost feel like I shouldn't include this part in the episode because I don't. Well, no one will understand what the, what we're talking about.
1: They won't understand, and also it's we're our theatrical release is on Friday, and and even if they they are hearing it now, that you won't even be able to really attach what I'm saying to what you're about to see because then it takes a
0: bunch more turns. Yeah, it's true, and you know, hopefully by that point in the movie, nobody's going to be thinking about this podcast if they're watching it.
1: No, and if they are, no, hopefully they will. <laughs>
0: <laughs> as long as they're not thinking, you know, I'd really rather be watching The Shawshank Redemption right
1: now. That's <laughs> true. I mean, if they are, I won't I won't be mad at them because it's my favorite. So I'm, I'll be okay with that.
0: My thanks to Amanda Bruegel, who stars opposite Jonas Chernick, Natalie Brown, Christine Horn, Sujith Verghese, and Sean Doyle in Ashgrove, in theaters and on digital across Canada this Friday, December 2nd. Thanks also to Jeremy Lalonde. He knows what he did. Amanda's no longer on Twitter, and I don't really blame her, but you can find her on Instagram at Amanda Bruegel, all one word, and you can find The Shawshank Redemption on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment, and streaming on Netflix, Crave, and Stars on Amazon in Canada, and on HBO Max, DirecTV, Fubo, and AMC Plus on the Roku channel in the U.S. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, Cast, and on the web at movie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.